0: Namasa tu a buddhasā. sama sam buddhaasa buddhasā. tu arah tu sama sam buddhaasa Namasa Bo tu sama kang namasa Okay, well, lovely to have all the family here. Um, that's, that's what it feels like. I mean, some of us see each other on a pretty regular basis on Sunday nights, but um, um, also quite a few of us once a year or <laughs> something like that. It's great to see everybody. It's also lovely to have uh, Sister Chandasuri join us. So this is our annual celebration of the Buddha's birthday, Enlightenment Day, and uh, passing away the Waysaka Puja, as it's traditionally called. And there is, of course, a lot for the Asian community uh, associated with this. It's a tradition that they were brought up in. It's kind of like it's not really like Christmas because it doesn't have quite the same feeling if you're out in Asia and it's way suck. It's not like Christmas, but it's got something of that degree of, of importance to it. It's, it's the big annual celebration. And of course, for most of us, uh, we weren't brought up with that. Um, we've embraced this path of practice because there's some personal relevance. To us, We choose to observe these festivals like Vaisak and Magha Puja and Katina and these things and these traditions because they are part of, of what we've inherited. And I think uh, myself, there is some uh, considerable skill in, in honouring what we've inherited uh, to bring these things into our, the context of our society and, and see what there is there that is relevant what, what works for us, and certainly certainly what works for me, and what I encourage and what I would encourage is um, in this occasion of the the full moon of May to stop and to to really reflect on on what the birth of the Buddha means. the Buddha was born into this world, and the Buddha was enlightened, and the Buddha, like human beings, died and um, I think what I'd like to share today is is something to do with how I apply this as a as a as a uh, contemplation. I mean, yes, the ritual of coming together as a family. That it's always nice to see you and to have food together and meet up and talk about things and so on. That's good. Um, but the form of Waisak, you know, the, the full moon, and, and even the the form of 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 Buddhism, I think it's important that we keep remembering that the form is only the packaging, and the form is the convention, has got its place, but it's not really the point. Uh, And and as with any form or any tradition, any practice, we can make the mistake of of uh, falling for overemphasizing the form. What we can see, what we can hear, what we can smell, what we can taste, what we can touch. but all of the things that we can see here, smell, taste and touch, are all basically transitory, insecure, uh, impermanent and basically bound to let us down. So even Buddhism for that matter, as a convention, is guaranteed to let us down. Uh, as in and I were just talking about a new book that's been published which talks about many of the faults of Buddhism. There's more and more of them coming out now. Now Buddhism's getting more popular. There's more anti-Buddhist books coming out. The Shadow Side of the Dalai Lama. What do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> was that... It was in German. It's not translated yet. So, uh... <laughs> was, was, you asked, was that written by the Chinese government? Um, to tell you the truth, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the author. <laughs> and, um, but it's a kind of inevitable thing that happens. Um, that's you know that's the outside of Buddhism. It's guaranteed to let you down. Monks and nuns, monasteries. Guaranteed to let us all down. So that's not that's not what the Buddha was encouraging. In fact, there's an interesting there's an interesting uh, story in the scriptures, an occasion where one of the Buddha's disciples, Vakali, who was full of love and devotion for the Lord, and used to just sit there and gaze at him because apparently he was very beautiful and uh, very inspiring just to look at. And I think you make kind of all these movie stars look absolute rubbish, you know, apparently the Buddha was right up there, you know, I mean, David Beckham would just be a, a complete wally compared to to the, to the Lord, you know, well, I know a lot of people have got David Beckham up on their wall, a lot of, lot of Buddhist women, I mean, he's kind of, you know, as far as human beings go, he's a pretty good looking fellow, well, apparently the Buddha was much better than that, I mean, he was radiant, and luckily, anyway, he used to just sit there and admire the Buddha's form until one day the Buddha must have got tired of it and told him off, and and rebuked him and said, luckily, you're looking at the wrong thing. Uh, you're looking at the outside. No, that's not what this is about. Okay, there may be something beautiful there. Uh, the Buddha's teachings may be impressive. Uh, when you first meet monks and nuns, they can be inspiring. <laughs> 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 but after a while, you know, <laughs> it all wears off. <laughs> and what are we left with? That's the thing. I think that's and this is one of the wonderful things. This is why I personally have always felt totally safe with this teaching. The form is not the point. Yes, the form is to be respected. Yes, Vaisak, the form and, and Buddha Nusati reflection on the qualities of the Buddha as a teacher, the Buddha himself encouraged these things, but that's not really the point. And like in fact, just now we were chanting in the Mahamangala Sutta, puja ja puja honouring that which is worthy of honour. Is the greatest blessing. So we're encouraged to actually use our discernment to to look in and not just not just uh, take the outer forms, the outer traditions, and fun as it may well be to get together and so on. Uh, that's not really the essence. The essence is what what is the essence. And when we when we um, when we talk about celebrating the birth of the Buddha. For me, when I, when I think about this, I have been thinking about it the last few days, you know, celebrating the birth of the Buddha, for me, has got a lot more to do with actually remembering and cultivating that which Buddhism is all about, which is awareness itself. That when, in the moment of awareness, in the moment of real awareness, in the moment of truth-discerning awareness, in the moment of mature awareness... That's what we're looking for, isn't it? When we, you know, we're not Buddhists because of something that happened in India 2,500 years ago. You know, that's gone. That's, that's history. We can read about it and it might be you know, interesting and so on. But what makes it relevant? What makes it relevant is when we can experience something. And what we experience is this possibility, surely, of being able to generate a quality of experience that makes a difference. Yeah, we, can, we, can, we can do something about it. In other words, we can, we can work on this. We can cultivate this. And, and, uh, and I think this is what uh, honoring the birth of the Buddha is about. For me, this is... You know, and every moment of the arising of awareness to really appreciate, this is the Buddha. This is, the Buddha. This is what the point of, of Buddha's teachings is about, is to remind us that there is this possibility all the suffering that there is in the world, internal and external. I mean, I'm sure everybody's got their own experience of personal disappointments, frustrations, despairs, anxieties, worries, resentments. And then that's just the inner ones. And then you can look outwardly and you can see the wars, the injustice, the, the, uh, things that are going on around us. The, again, the disappointments, the, and, uh, is it possible to live in the midst of all this and find freedom? Well, that was what the Buddha's life was about. You know, when he went off in his pursuit of enlightenment at the age of 29, he had this great doubt and what's it all about? And so something within him gave rise to this great great faith or hope or trust or conviction that Yes, there is something you can do about this. Yeah. There is something we can do. There is some point in cultivating the mind. This is not We're not victims. The Buddha did not suffer from a victim consciousness. Yeah, he, he engaged in the, in the suspicion that there is something we can do about this. And, and so he set off on this path of practice, not just for his own sake, but also out of compassion for everybody else, to realize what it is that we as human beings can do about our predicament, of being in the midst of all this... Difficulty, yes, the joys and happiness and pleasure there is of life, uh, but a lot of it is so fleeting. Is there a joy? Is there a happiness which is not fleeting? And that inspired the Buddha on his path, and thankfully he realised it, and he taught about it. And so, when I think about the birth of the Buddha, I think about how, what, how, and what I can do, where and when I can do that which the Buddha was asking us to do, which is, is to bring a quality of attention to this moment, to what's happening now, whereby we're not defined by merely the sensations or the content of our experience. Yeah. Whether it's agreeable or disagreeable, we're not limited by that. And so, if this is what, what we have confidence in, that it's possible to do this, that we can we can we can cultivate this, and then the task is well, how to do this, how to how to remember that there is something we can do about it, because it comes to all of us, you know, we, over and over again. There's so many disappointments and frustrations, and and uh, if it's not within your own personal life, where you can watch the telly, and you know, it's very easy to get an overdose of of uh, despair. And we don't want to close our eyes to it, we don't want to be ignorant of what's going on around it, but we also don't want to be limited by it. No. And so I uh, I find this a very inspiring contemplation. How can I remember this possibility, you know, wherever I am, not just when I'm in my, my cootie and everything's convenient and and all the junior monks are coming to tell me how useful and wonderful I am to them, which they do occasionally, you know. They also, you know, just to assure you, they tell me the opposite as well. But when everything is comfortable and convenient, we think, oh, well, that's easy to to cultivate presence, to be alert and aware. Or like when you're on a meditation retreat, we're getting some inspiration, everything's convenient. But not just those in those situations, but when we're really feeling down, when we're really feeling challenged. Well, I think one of the things that's really important is simply to remember how good it feels to be aware. Now, the Buddha taught about suffering a lot. This word dukkha has kind of almost been introduced in the English language now, because there's so much Buddhism around, and, and so we all know Buddhism is about suffering. That we can, we can exaggerate this point and forget that the reason the Buddha talked about about suffering was so that we could experience happiness he wasn't talking about suffering as an end in itself and in fact he talked a lot about happiness and the last few weeks uh, Tanhiriko and I have been working on next year's calendar you, you probably don't realise this but the, the calendar has to be worked on you know, over a year in advance because you know, it takes a lot to get it together and, and I usually do the easy bit which is get the pictures and then he does the other bit which is get the quotes and he's much better at reading than I am and you probably know that I Unchallenged when it comes to reading. Uh, so I, I haven't completely overcome my aversion for the exercise yet, I, I'm afraid. Uh, so anyway, I'm very grateful that Hiriko each year for the last few years, has helped out with this. And so he comes to me with a whole selection of inspiring quotes. And then between us, we agree on matching these up to the pictures and hoping that through the year you're going to have these inspiring things on your wall and you're going to read them regularly and absorb it and be inspired and encouraged. And anyway... We've just, uh, we just pretty well finished this just now and sent it off to the typesetter and so on. And, and one of the verses there, it was uh, February, uh, Ajahn Jai Saro, Yana, Dhammo and Ajahn Pasano, all smiley and happy. And there's a verse there from the Dhammapada, verse number 331. And, uh, <laughs> and it says, um, Happiness arises from timely company of friends. This is true. Happiness arises from fewness of needs, which is obviously true. I mean, if you're always wanting, 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 that's pretty tedious, isn't it? To be contented. Happiness arises from having accumulated virtue at life's end. To die feeling contented, to be approaching death with contentment is beautiful. Happiness. And then the last line, happiness arises from seeing through suffering. That happiness arises from seeing through suffering. We tend to see suffering, don't we? I mean, I, I, I still tend to see suffering. If I'm suffering, it's very easy to take it as some sort of an indictment against myself. Because I'm suffering, I'm failing. Well, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the way the Buddha presented it. Uh, the, suffering is to be understood. Suffering is to be received. Suffering is to be seen. And if we can see suffering and then see through suffering, well, that's happiness. That's real happiness. And that's that's the work of awareness. That's, that's when the Buddha is being the Buddha. When the Buddha is being the Buddha, when the Buddha is born, then the Buddha sees suffering and sees through suffering. Mm-hmm. And then there's happiness. And uh, to remember that, for me, that's what honoring that which is worthy of honor, that's what's celebrating the birth of the Buddha, is in any moment, in any moment when suffering arises and we don't just default to our habits of splitting off into some sort of weird realm where we're only kind of virtually human and thinking about it's their fault or it's my fault or it's my mother's fault or it's it's the moon in Aries or something or other. (laughs) As in Chandasiri and I were... She's a great astrologer. She was a great astrologer. Sorry, sister. She embarrassed if I say she's a great astrologer. She was a great astrologer and we sometimes consult on these things, taking it very lightly, of course. But, um, you know, people do. They say, oh, it's my moon in Aries. If only my moon wasn't in Aries, I wouldn't be suffering. Or, or if my mother, you know, or if my brother, or if my husband, or if my wife, or my children, or, or the abbot, or the junior monks. <laughs> not to mention the Anagaraga. <laughs> you know, that's what we do. That's what we do when the Buddha's not being the Buddha. When the Buddha's not being the Buddha then there's this kind of virtual human being, goes off into this kind of virtual realm. Yeah. But when the Buddha's being the Buddha, when awareness is doing what awareness can do, it's here, it's in the body, it's a whole body-mind that's being present with this. Okay, so there's suffering. That's part of the package. Right? It's like saying salt shouldn't be salty. I mean, salt is salty. Yeah. Life is like this. There is difficulties. But they don't have to be problems. There are only problems if the Buddha forgets to be the Buddha. Yeah. Well, the Buddha never forgets to be the Buddha, but of course we forget that. We forget to be the Buddha. We forget to understand what the Buddha was pointing to, which is this possibility. We forget there is this refuge. There is this possibility of this, this awareness in the moment, even, even when it's really getting rough. You know, this, this is, and it's not. It's not just remember, It's not just any old awareness. It's truth discerning awareness. It's not split off, being hypersensitive awareness. You know. It's truth, discerning awareness, embodied awareness, here and now awareness. You know, when the Buddha is being the Buddha, that means it's here and now. And we often forget that when we when we're confronted with suffering, and we don't see through the suffering, we just see the suffering, and our attention falls short of the possibility of realizing what the Buddha realized. Is you know, often because we're not in the here and now. You know, we get pulled into the past and. And we think, if only that hadn't happened. Oh, that's so tempting. I mean, that is just so delicious, isn't it? If only. You know, and sometimes it's if only I hadn't done that, if only I hadn't said that, and it's so delicious. It just, it's just like. But it's delicious, like some intoxicating liqueur. What's that nice liqueur that they pour over ice cream? Cointreau, is it? Yeah, I think I remember forty-two years ago. <laughs> there was this friend of mine had a bottle of Cointreau and we decided to finish it before he went away and uh, <laughs> but it's poison <laughs> we got sick <laughs> but it's delicious isn't it you know and that's that's like if only i hadn't made that mistake it just feels so attractive we easily get pulled into that but is that taking us to reality is that does that give us presence does that bring us to a place of seeing through suffering no well, but we'll you know, of course, there's you know some point in, in reflecting. Well, if that had not happened, that wouldn't happen. That's fine. You know, that's what our intelligence is for. But to sink into that, if only, that's not it. You know. So to remember, you know, there's, there is this possibility that you know the Buddha can be born into this world. And that's important, and and to cultivate this truth discerning awareness, not just any other awareness. If we have any other awareness, we can. We can misread all sorts of things. We get loads of information. Our senses are picking up all sorts of things and and our brains, fabulous brains that we've all got. They're amazing things. Our human brains is this fascinating potential that we've got. But the information that we can assimilate and the, the what we can pick up throughout the sensitive organism, if it's not disciplined awareness, if it's not matured awareness, if it's not worked on awareness, well then it's not truth-discerning awareness and we can... Misperceive things. So it's not difficult, for instance, to get a little sensitive. You, know, you can get very sensitive quite easily and uh, start picking up on things and feeling things. And You can meditate in certain ways that heighten your sensitivity. But if our awareness is not informed with wisdom, with right understanding, with what right, I well, would call right view, well then we can misperceive things. So getting sensitive is not just it. Getting informed, you know, like intellectual information. The internet, wow. I love Google. <laughs> I mean, it's just interesting. But you can get it wrong. You can get it wrong with Google. I, I got it wrong recently when I was in New Zealand. I was giving this talk on, on um, how New Zealanders didn't appreciate what they had. And I pointed out to them that last year, Google, at the end of the year, they produce a report to say who and where and when people searched for these particular words most. And the word misery, which country in the world do you think searched for the word misery most? Which city in the world? Auckland. And I thought this was a great subject for a dumber talk. And so I was expounding, you know, my wisdom and so on. And then somebody came up to me afterwards and said, oh, you know why? It's because there's a fashion boutique called misery. LAUGHTER and you order things online. But, uh, uh, smart Alec. <laughs> so, you know, even information, you know, <laughs> even information about ourselves, you know, you get a little subtle, get a little introspective and watch your mind on a regular basis and become fascinated, you know, with yourself and uh, but getting sensitive is not it. Well, the Buddha's talking about this truth discerning. What he what he realised was the truth discerning, and awareness that really sees suffering but sees through suffering, and that's the kind of happiness that he was in encouraging us and inspiring us uh, to uh, pick up. And and I think so. That's one of the ways when I when I when I think about honouring the Buddha, the birth of the Buddha in this world, honouring that for me is exercising this, cultivating this. You just remember what I can do. And one of the things I can do is just remember how good it feels. It feels really, really, really good. And it feels really lousy when it's not there. That's good also, just to really, when you're really off the mark. When you're really off the mark. When you, when you lose it and you're unaware. Just just how yuck that feels. And you know, not to dismiss that. You know, When when it gets really yuck, we just do anything to avoid it, and then we've managed to avoid it, or we've ridden it out or whatever, then we forget it. Oh, thank goodness that's passing you know, you turn on Heroes or whatever it is people watch these days. I hear there's a program called Heroes, and it's um, followed... Um, good it's good, isn't it? Yeah, I've heard it's good. I, I, yeah, Bob keeps telling me it's really good. and It's even better than, apparently better than Desperate Housewives. Yeah, what about Lost? Is that yes. that's better than that, Lost? is oh, OK. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to seeing Heroes, but I, I, I really... I really think that after you've come through a bad time, the thing to do is just to stay with it a little while and to see if we can get some mileage out of it, just to see, you know, this is, this is one way of encouraging <coughs> the arising of awareness. You know, we, we can cultivate, this is what jitta Bhavana, or cultivation Bhavana of the heart, this presence the Buddha lived in, lived as, can be conditioned in its arising by the kind of effort that we make. And so it might be okay to turn on heroes and so on. After, we've had a closer look. Will, why do we suffer? Where And how do we suffer? What do we do that makes us suffer? And it is always the same thing. We always lose awareness. We always, it's out of unawareness. We only suffer out of unawareness. So how can we bring ourselves back to this over and over again? Not how can we distract ourselves. It's easy to distract ourselves. I read recently that, um, you know, did you read that article about the sheep shearers in Australia? Sheep shearers in Australia, apparently they're all on drugs. They're not these nice, jolly, positive characters that we all thought they were. They're a bunch of junkies. They did this test and 40% of them are stoned. And they're not taking mild sort of, you know, recreational stimulants like in our day we did. I mean, there's something called ice, whatever that is. I suppose you know what ice is, and And speed balls, whatever they are, and they 're all stoned out of their skulls, uh, avoiding the suffering of having to bend their back and shear these poor little sheep and Drugs is one way of doing it.
1: Uh, I also heard
0: um, that that the water in London apparently is recycled so often that it 's actually got prozac in it they they, they apparently they can 't clear the prozac out there's so much prozac being peed into the water supply now that uh, yeah. Well, there are a time and place for people to take Prozac. Actually, it's, uh, it's just a pity that so many people have to take it, and uh, as a way of dealing with the difficulties. And it is; it's very, I and mean, it's not. It's uh, we well, can laugh at it, but it's not a joke because um, the uh, survey did last year was I think it's something like every every 30 hours, somebody in London dies from um, drug abuse. And drugs can be. There is a time and place for using them, but um, medically, but. Uh, the abuse of drugs, the abuse of food, the abuse of the senses, which you probably all of us have have have, have some modest experience of, uh, why do we fall into these uh, ways and the, these tendencies? Because we forget or in some cases people simply have never been told that there is this possibility of doing something about it, to have confidence enough in the fact that awareness works, that this, this works, this There is this possibility to come to a here and now, body-mind, judgment-free quality of attention that means that we can be with our experience in a different way. We don't have to be just pulled into our conditioning. We're conditioned to have these reactions. We have our reactions. We can get very judgmental of our reactions. But if we can just stop and reflect in a truth-discerning way, like the Buddha encourages, this is all conditioned. This is all conditioned. All the stuff, all of our reactions. Some of you probably heard me talk about what happened when I was going for a soak in the thermal hot springs in New Zealand a few months ago when I was home visiting people. I, my friend and attendant, uh, Richard, was with me, and, and we went to this old thermal hot pool that I knew very well from when I was a teenager, and they used to have private pools. I didn't want to go in the public pool. They kind of look a bit weird, this kind of holy man going to soak in a public pool, and, so I thought, well, you know, my limbs would appreciate a little soak in the hot pool, but as long as it's private. So Richard went in and asked the nice lady at the desk. Well, we thought she was nice, but anyway, went and asked this lady at the desk. Said, um, Richard said, oh, do you still have private pools? I've got a, I've got a monk who would like to uh, soak in one of your private pools. And she says, yeah, we've got private pools, but I've got no time for monks at all. They're a complete waste of space. <laughs> well, I'm pleased you think that's funny. That's, <laughs> I was shocked. I mean, I was just busy encouraging Richard to appreciate New Zealand hospitality. And here was this woman <laughs> saying, I've got no time for them, they're a complete waste of space. And um, when Richard first told me this, I did actually think he was joking, but then I was walking down, he said, no, no, it's real. And I got a little, hmm. got a little, a little reaction. And um, so the first... Um, 10 minutes or so, soaking on my own this beautiful hot pool, I was distracted <laughs> with unawareness. I was distracted with unawareness. That's what was happening and I was not really soaking up the minerals and, and appreciating what was being offered fully. But, you know, I, I did. I was on the right track and I just sat there on the nice submerged bench and you know, really did what I do and um, meditating and and, you know, then it does what it does. It just, meditation works. It takes you, you know, if we're doing it rightly, it takes you to another place where there's a shift. And for me in that moment, it was so, it was, I was so grateful for that little encouragement. I didn't realize that I was dwelling on these negative thoughts. I was, I was basically preparing a little speech I was going <laughs> to offer to this lady on the way out. <laughs> I, I was going to offer her a reflection. Have you got a problem with <laughs> me? Well, when's the last time you met a monk, anyway? <laughs> and I was—I spent quite a while preparing this little speech, but I was also coming, <laughs> coming back to practice. I was doing what you know the Buddha said to do, and then wonderfully, it dissolved. I was very present, and, and it was very beautiful, and there was so much gratitude. I just—and I noticed instantly—it was—I didn't have to think up this. It just instantly my mind just thought. What can I say nice to this woman on the way out, just because, you know, she's probably not having a good day or something, and there's no malice, no wish to get my own bag, no wish to anything at all other than just the heart, when we're present, wants to share that which is beautiful in life. This is not. This is, when the Buddha is born in the world, this is what happens. And if when these things, these little moments happen, we can remember them, consciously say, all right, this is what happened, This this is what happens. You lose awareness, this is what happens. When you, we make the kind of effort that gives rise to awareness, this is what happens. To be conscious of this. And for me, as I said, this is, uh, this is really honouring, celebrating the birth of the Buddha in the world. And, and also to... Uh, and when we go the other way, is to, uh, to be aware of that. I mean, humbling and frustrating and difficult as, as it can be at times, is to spend some time just feeling the bad feeling yeah. um some of you might have come across a f- book that I find very inspiring that I'm not sure I remember the name of now uh Jacques Luzeron and there was light then there was light and there was light something like that and there was light or then there was light it's in our library I don't think it's in print anymore but it's a wonderful book Jacques Luzeron was a friend of a friend of mine and uh he was, I'll just tell you briefly the story because it's very inspiring. He was a normal child up until the age of seven. Well, he's still a normal child after that, but not from the worldly perspective because he had an accident, he had glasses, glass went into his eye and lost his sight completely at the age of seven. For his parents and family, of course, it was a total disaster. A seven-year-old boy in Paris uh, lost his eyesight. No, actually he wasn't in Paris then, he was later. But for him, he said, the age says, well, it's just the next thing to discover about life. You know, it's something worth remembering about children. You know, they're not operating on the same basis of memory and what used to be, or if only, or what if, like we are. So anyway, he got on with his life, but one of the things that he discovered was, very soon after that, that he had a kind of inner seeing that he was able to find his way around, even without his eyes, and he could hear things much better than other people, more acutely. And he could find his way around a city. If he went to a new town or city with his friends, he could find his way around better than his friends, quicker than his friends. When he went to an orchestra, every instrument had a colour. And in a colour, he would sit there, of course couldn't see anything like us, but every instrument he could actually see inwardly. But he found out that when his mind got taken over by selfishness or ill will, he lost it he lost his inner scene. And so from very early age on, like seven or eight, he had to train his mind to not get caught up in resentment or selfishness. And this served him very well, because and the book is what the book is about, well, this whole story, but what it goes on to talk about is that during the years of resistance, 1939, 1940, 41, in Paris, he was um, part of the resistance movement, the underground movement there. They were publishing papers and, and so on, and his job was to vet everybody who wanted to join the organisation because nobody got past his detectors. You know, his dete- he could just listen to them and he could tell. So, don't trust him or, yeah, he's OK. And this was perfect until, very sadly, somebody didn't play by the system and somebody got in without being vetted by him. And sure enough, the whole group was betrayed uh, to the Nazis and they all ended up in, I think it was Birkenau or uh, one of those camps. But even still for him, because he had prepared his mind and heart so well, even in the camps, and this is most beautifully presented in this book, he didn't allow his heart and mind to sink into uh, resentment and, and uh, self-centeredness. So uh, this is an example, again, it's an inspiration, it's an encouragement for us to do what we can do to really to actualize this possibility that the Buddha inspired us towards. So for me, this is... Uh, the birth of the Buddha. The enlightenment of the Buddha. I think of the enlightenment of the Buddha. What happened? What really happened with the enlightenment of the Buddha in terms of how does this relate to me? I say, well, yes, the Buddha was enlightened, and I'm very pleased about that because that meant he could teach and that's brought real benefit. But that's still just the form. That's the outside. The Buddha says don't put too much on the outside. What what is that? What's the relevance? And for me when I think about the enlightenment of the Buddha, what it means is it it 's the possibility that these moments of awareness, these moments of vastness that that we can we can get close to or we can we can feel or we can sense these moments do not have to be limited they do not have to pass away and for us, these moments come and go if we have them at all, they come and go, and that's usually somewhat limited, but the possibility that that this this awareness can be realised ultimately, I find a tremendous inspiration. You know, you know, sometimes we think of our practice and say, "Oh, I'm so far from enlightenment. I'm so far from, you know, freedom and so on." And so on. But Ajahn Chai used to give this wonderful image. She said, "It's like it's like um, a tap dripping. And You get drip, drip." And it's true, in between the drips, there's just space, there's no tap dripping, there's no water. But when the water drips, that's real water, that's a drip. And so all that happens is that just the moments increase. So it goes from drip, 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 to drippity, drippity, drip. And then, whew, it's a stream, an endless stream. It's the same moments of awareness connected. And that's, I think that's helpful to remember. That, you know, we don't have to devalue or lack appreciation for our moments of awareness when these moments of awareness come to really appreciate them and have confidence that this is something that we can cultivate until maybe we can realize what the Buddha realized which is that when the Buddha stopped making an effort his heart didn't collapse down again for us if we somehow for all sorts of whatever mysterious reasons we find ourselves with presence with awareness here and now alive it's beautiful. And yet it takes a certain kind of effort to stay with that. And then when we get distracted or we stop making the effort, whatever, we know what happens. You know, things contract down again. The muscles tense. The shoulders go up. We forget. We lose ourselves. You know, for the Buddha, after the Buddha's enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, that didn't happen anymore. That was it. Forever. And that's worth, that's worth, I think, worth contemplating, worth remembering. And the, for me, the inspiration that, that comes out of it is that, that when, you, you, know, when you, you reach the point of feeling the limitation of awareness, you know, which we all get to from time to time, you say, I can't take it anymore. You say, I can't take it anymore. You know, the, just you start to get hot or you start to get cold or your tears start to flow or you just get to that point, I can't take it anymore say, so, well, yeah, the Buddha's been there too. You know, when the Buddha wasn't the Buddha, before he was the Buddha, he had an experience of limited awareness. It wasn't like the Buddha had to wait until the full moon of May on that date before he ever had a moment of awareness. The Buddha had lots of moments of awareness, the real thing, you know, real clear view, clear seeing, lots of it. But then, yes, he lost it again until he really became the Buddha. And when he really became the Buddha, that was just the point where he remembered completely, that's all. For us, we lose it because of the momentum of our unawareness. We lose it. So, when we're at the point of being about to lose it, and we say, "Oh, I just can't take it anymore," we so say, "Aha! Good. This is the point. This is the point where I've reached the extent of awareness. This is where this is where I impose limitations on awareness because this is not the inherent nature of awareness. This is not." You know, if awareness or consciousness or whatever word you want to put onto it was inherently like this, well, then the Buddha could never become the Buddha. It's not like this ultimately. It's only like this because of our habit of imposing limitations on awareness. And so when we reach the point of feeling limited in our awareness and say, I can't take it anymore, we say, ah, oh, good, this is the point. This is the point where we can move a little closer to enlightenment. Yeah. And if we can remember this, then at that time instead of instead of whatever the pain is or whatever the energy is that we can't contain anymore, leaking out or maybe shooting out, depending on what what we're doing, (laughs) how heedless we're being with our speech or action, we just take a deep breath and create a lot more space and see if we can't just hold it a little bit longer. And what comes out of that, if we can remember that, if we can remember that, well, then we realize we can do something about it. Again, awareness works. This really works. In that moment, we can realize that. Okay, at that time, there was the impression, I can't take it anymore. We just realized we could. And even this feeling of I, this inherently limited I, is not what it looks like. You know, That's why the Buddha gave the teaching on anattā after his enlightenment, he went and said, don't believe in the way this I appears to be. This I appears so solid and so permanent from the perspective of his edgeless, vast awareness, he realized that this eye is a speck of dust floating through empty space, yeah. Yeah. a conditioned speck of dust coming and going. that's all it is it's not the way it appears to be and then third aspect for our, our way suck celebration is the uh, passing away, honoring the occasion of the passing away of the Buddha. Uh-huh. When I think about that, and so you well know, what how does this really apply to me? I mean, i can 't say I celebrate the death of the Buddha. I, I wish the Buddha didn 't die. It would be nice to have met the Buddha, so i can 't say i 'm celebrating the death of the Buddha honoring the death of the Buddha or finding relevance. What is this you know like contemplating in this way, just in trying to apply these teachings in a way that is more than just believing what other people say, but really internalizing it. And so anyway, what comes up for me when I think about the death of the Buddha, well, there's two things. And I think maybe the first thing is gratitude. I just, I just think back. Before, before I had this practice perspective on life, it was really difficult. I mean, I I really, you know, I wasn't having a good time when I was 17. (laughs) And if it had gone on like that, I'd dread to think what would have happened so i'm just, i'm hugely grateful and, and and being a monk, being able to being able to live this life, i mean you've got no idea how horrible it is being a monk you, i mean you know there's no point in me even bothering to try and tell you it's just I mean, it's just unbelievably difficult, unpleasant experience, but do you agree sister i mean wonderful. she 's so discreet. <laughs> But I still have enormous gratitude and, and just huge gratitude for this opportunity. And so I think, for me, that's when I think about the death of the Buddha, that's what comes up. It's just to, just to feel grateful. And, and that gratitude, you know what gratitude does? One of the interesting things about gratitude is it makes you susceptible. Gratitude makes us susceptible. It makes the heart soft and, and malleable. And, you know, it accords with Dhamma. You know, one of the reasons why you know, we, we sometimes have difficulty really reaping the benefit of all our practices is that we're in too much of a hurry to get insight. We're too greedy, too selfish, and, and we bypass some of the simple stages, just like generosity and gratitude and, and these things, you know, just to, to really enjoy gratitude when it arises in the heart. and, and a Gratitude for the Buddha, gratitude for the Dhamma, gratitude for the Sangha, for the teachers that have shown us the way. Gratitude for those in our life that have supported us. You know, that's why every every Sunday night um, here we, we chant the Anamodana after puja because it's the largest gathering of lay people that we have here every week. And, and we're so grateful that people support this place. And often people's way of supporting this monastery is by making a standing order, which we never see. We don't see the standing order. Well, occasionally I might see them if I go up to the office and Penny's doing a books or where I'm talking to Clive, the treasurer, who's busy trying to get more standing orders all the time, which is, thank you very much for that, Clive. <laughs> but usually, sadly, we're not aware. it. now in a traditional Buddhist context, you know, we've got a rule that if somebody makes an offering and you don't actually express an now, that's an offence against our training. Every time an offering is made, it's a, you know, you're supposed to acknowledge that with an anamodana with appreciation, because there is this relationship you know, to express appreciation, to cultivate gratitude, it's not just polite. You know, we might like to think of saying thank you as polite. It's more than polite. The heart is nourished by gratitude. You know, when we when we really allow gratitude to to seep into the heart, well, the heart becomes susceptible to dhamma. And so, to express that and to feel it, and having said that, also on this occasion, I want to I want to make a point of of saying. Um, Two or three things actually about gratitude, and that is the first thing is that um, in the last few months uh, here we've um, we've lost two of our trustees. That is Jody and Richard Hopkins. Well, actually, Richard hasn't resigned yet, but he tells me he's about to because he's going to go and live in Bulgaria, um, where the sun is bright and and um, he's retiring basically, which is wonderful for Richard. But actually, for us, it's a great loss and. Uh, We have Mudita for him, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, we're very happy for Richard and and, and Janine. That's great. Um, But I also want to say that we're really going to miss you, Richard, uh, if he's still here. Is Richard still here? Yeah, we're going to miss you a lot. Richard's been here since the very beginning of the monastery. He was one of the people who, you know, maybe the person, I don't know, he or Nick, who answered the advertisement from Farmer Wake and said, yeah, we're interested in renting this cottage. and a pretty bold gesture, really, that they made, uh, pretty daring, what they were taking on, and the commitment has been consistent throughout, for more than 25 years, and we're hugely grateful uh, to Richard for that, and the effort that he's made. And also Jodie, who, I don't know, I haven't checked it out, but I think it's more than 20 years Jodie was a trustee, um, or about 20 years, and again, a consistent, uh, uh, significant commitment, for which we're very, very grateful, but... Uh, As probably most of us know, Jodie has had a uh, a serious illness for quite some time now and it's become so serious that actually attending meetings is not very easy for her anymore. So we don't see so much of her. But I would like to take this opportunity to express our gratitude. Uh, It's it's been very significant and both, both those people are very grateful. Also, on that same theme is, uh, once again, uh, to raise the subject of our wonderful sewer system. And I just want to say that the, we had a dream team. You wouldn't believe it. Um, Bill, Farad, and David Ort. I mean, these three guys are phenomenal. I mean, there's no way of, of talking about the amount of work they put into it, and we're very, very indebted to them. And so I just want, every time you go to the toilet, I just want you to stop for a moment and, <laughs> and have a moment of gratitude to Bill, Farad, and David, uh, because it's uh, not insignificant what's been achieved. Hmm. So the passing away of the Buddha, uh, um, how, do we, how do we reflect on that? How is that relevant to us? Well, for me, certainly gratitude is something that comes up. The other thing, that, um, just briefly, because I realize I'm going on a bit here, but the other thing is um, that what the Buddha did when he died, like they asked him, said, okay, who's taking over, Lord? Uh, who are you appointing in your place? And he said, oh, I leave you the Dhamma Vinaya. There's nobody. I'm not appointing anybody. I leave you the Dhamma Vinaya. That is the, the teaching, you know, the, the Dhamma, and the training. The teaching and the training. This is, this is what you should look to. And, and basically, basically, what he was saying was, this is yours now. This is over to you. This is your responsibility. Yeah, I've done my bit, and, uh, and this is your responsibility. And I think that's worth taking on board, really, when I think about that, because, you know, there's part of me and uh, my conditioning, my early life conditioning, that somehow thinks there's somebody out there, a big mummy or daddy, you know, kind of gigantic mummy or daddy in the sky who's kind of taking care of things. And it doesn't really matter whatever happens, somehow it's all going to be okay in the end anyway. Now, when I stop and look at that, I think, wow, I've got no evidence for that theory at all. In fact, I downright disbelieve it. I don't really think there is any gigantic mommy or daddy out there looking after us. Uh, And I do really trust what the Buddha said about this, that that there is only going to be the Dhamma in the world so long as we're practicing it. Or the opportunity to realize and practice the Dhamma so long as we're practicing it. The Dhamma, or reality, is uh, akaliko, timeless. The Dhamma is just so, the truth is just so. That's beyond time and place. That's not going anywhere. You know, the truth is forever. That's just so. But the opportunity to practice it, to honour the training that the Buddha laid out, that's relative. You know, the that, Buddha did talk about, the fact, that there will be a time in the future, there will be a Kali Yuga, there will be a dark age, when uh, there won't be an opportunity to practice. Now, there are some kind of miserable old grumps around who say that it's already here. And uh, I don't subscribe to that philosophy at all. You know, it's up to us whether we practice the Dhamma or not. When the Buddha died, you know, I, I interpret that as actually, you know, his handing it over to us and saying, here it is. This is the opportunity to practice. And, and so for us to um, basically to exercise that if it's got value for us. So on this occasion of uh, reflecting on and hopefully honoring the birth, enlightenment and passing away of the Buddha, I'd like to encourage us all to take some time? You know, maybe at the end of the day, today, you know, when we're sitting, meditating, and just you know, just to ponder this, you know, how relevant is this to me? What does this mean? What is the birth of the Buddha? What is the enlightenment of the Buddha? Was it just some guy in Nepal or India, 2,500 and something years ago? Or is there some real relevance here? In the passing way of the Buddha, what does this mean to me? And I hope that... Uh, my ponderings this afternoon are some encouragement and inspiration for your reflections Thank you very much for your attention